32 counties. 32 of those questions. My name's Una. And I'm Andrea. And this is United United Ireland. Ireland. Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. I still can't stop thinking about your one, Theresa Manion. Anyway. Where in the world? Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) This week's county is... Claire. This week's question... (laughs) Should we forgive dune-bag Trumpism? Oh, I feel like this is going to be juicy. First of all, the week that was. How was your week, Andrea? My week was absolutely glorious because I finally relieved my dental pain. And I just, I just want to take a moment for anyone who is a chronic pain surfer. I just have so much respect for how you get through life. I suppose uh, yin and yang on that. I was uh, our la- last week's episode was about mayo, and I was all about mayo last week because I went to the amazing Turk Fest on Inish Turk, which was an absolute ball. However, I didn't because of my stupid dental pain. Yeah, that was very difficult for you. But I was representing. Um, you with pride, particularly on the Gaelic football pitch where I... My favourite. I'm just so at home there. God, <laughs> throw me over one of them balls. <laughs> I did an absolute number on my foot and I'm now sporting a very attractive giant robo boot leg type cast. And what have we learned from that? Um, well, your main <laughs> advice to me was don't play sport ever. Well, unless you're like playing sport all the time don't like play it when you're did you have a drink I bet you had a drink no I didn't it was did you have a drink the night before like maybe one unless you're like being professional and out sport okay oh, <laughs> stop making me feel worse than I already am anyway no fracture just permanent damage <laughs> and a glam boot and a glam boot but the um, also what was great this week was everybody's really really lovely reaction to our interview with Saoirse McHugh thank you so much for listening thank you to all our brilliant patrons and you too can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash United Ireland get on board it's a brill podcast this week and we want to keep making them golden and we're about to start doing our rewards so if I were you I'd get in before it's too late it's never too late but like get in soon what do you make of all the happenings and news this week Andrea what have you been focusing on well, my favourite story is the Michael Gove taking coke story. And not the fact that he takes coke, because this is going to be controversial. Everyone takes coke. Uh, but... <laughs> that is not true, but anyway. It, like, I guarantee, like, I just can't get over the amount of coke that's been taken in society. And maybe I just happen to be in places where there's a lot. But it's every, across the board, solicitors, doctors, barristers, the whole shebang. Anyway, that's a side note. But God's way of telling you you have too much money, as they once said. Yeah, and it's true. Like, stop. And it makes you an asshole. Um, but the fact that uh, Michael Gove was like, oh, yeah, sure, look, lads will be lads. And then Diane Abbott was absolutely vilified for having a little G&T tinny on the overground. Like, there was literally an uproar. And I just think it's absolutely indicative of the differences between... And, like, I know sometimes there's a reach between... It's because she's a woman and blah, blah, blah. But you have a black woman vilified for having a G&T and then you have this dose taking coke we're like ah yeah that's grand and then oh my god this is the best bit of all this story Boris Johnson was asked if he's ever taken coke and he's like well I did once but I sneezed so it came out so it doesn't really count that was that was on Sky News like it was the funniest thing I've ever seen he is such an absolute idiot it's the the kind of the worst version of (laughs) I didn't inhale yeah 
Also, uh, what was going on this week, this discussion around straight pride in Boston, which is just ridiculous. Um, having a straight pride in Boston at the same time, you have coverage over that lesbian couple getting attacked in London. So it's like maybe there isn't a straight pride because you don't need one. Mm. And not to bring it down to like the entertainment side of it, but like what are they going to have on their floats? Like... I'm straight and I just think it's the like I wouldn't go to it <laughs> and I'm pretty proud what else was uh, ringing your bell this week um, what else Simon Harris swoon every <laughs> fucking week with Simon Harris and did you love the screen grab this week of his baby and work oh, stop it like <laughs> I can't um, but this week he uh wants to bring in more measures to stop under it. Now, this is it's actually an ill-advised comment he made. He wants to stop uh, under 18s getting Botox. Now, all the Botox clinics are saying nobody under 18 tries to get Botox. It's more the fillers that they're going for for their lips. And he wants to because basically anyone can do these fillers and you have 15 year olds. You can get get fillers in your lips if you're under 18. Yeah. Because you don't have to have a medical license at the moment. So he's trying to bring in more regulations now. It's unfortunate that he said Botox um, because it kind of like everyone's going, well, no 18 year old gets Botox, but it's actually the fillers he meant. Um, But he wants to regulate, I suppose, the whole industry. And then that's a good idea. Oh, 100%. Like 100%. It's just, do you know that babies are starting to have trouble um, recognising facial expressions because nobody has them anymore because everyone's getting Botox? Oh, Jesus. That's an actual fact. They did a study on it. Um, But also on Simon Harris, he has come out and said that um, all those religious sex ed people will no longer be able to do um, education classes in schools, which is about time. But like, let's be honest, it's time to get the church out of our schools full stop. Correct. That's it. (laughs) That's the end. And I love Simon. (laughs) This week's county is Clare. I learned so much about Clare this week and it's actually embarrassing that I didn't know so much. Hit me with your Clare facts. Well, first of all, this is a huge one. I'm laughing at myself. Did you know the Cliffs and Moe are in Clare? Yes, I actually didn't. I didn't know what county they were in. Anyway, they're in Clare. (laughs) Delighted. Congratulations, Clare. It's got a gorgeous population of 118,817 as per last census. County colours are, of course, blue and yellow or saffron yellow to be And it's known as Banner County. Yes. Yeah. Is that another bit? (laughs) Yeah, I'm literally like, whoa, my mind is blown. Good political steed, I suppose, with Dev and Patrick Hillary. And the inventor of the submarine was from Clare. Guess what it was called, the first submarine? I have no idea. The Fenian Ram. Nice, into it. <laughs> Fab. Um, duty-free shopping was invented in Clare in 1947. This is something I did not know. However, I do feel that duty-free shopping has gone down. That's the fault of the EU. Well, I think it's more <laughs> so the fault of cheap alcohol sales in supermarkets. Because if you go to duty free, let's say you're taking transatlantic flight. I know this is kind of a topic, <laughs> but it's a topic close to my heart. And you want to get like a nice bottle of Tanqueray or something. And it's like special offer, you know, 32 euro. And you're like, that's 25 bucks in Tesco. So I just feel that, you know, the supermarkets have kind of hit duty free. But yeah. well done for it being invented. <laughs> it was in cool when it was cool. Yeah. Like it was so exciting when you were getting your duty free, especially when smoking was cool. Which it is no longer. No, absolutely not. This is actually a really good one. 
the largest collection of gold objects ever discovered was in Europe, was in Clare, and it was in the 19th century from the latter part of the Bronze Age. Now, the interesting part of this is that's phenomenal. But because everyone was so greedy, they all sold it for loads of money, uh, melted it down and made new shit. So it has not been preserved. Oh, that's a very sad. Really good. My main emotional relationship with Claire was my granny's favourite song was My Lovely Rose of Claire. Oh, my lovely rose of Claire, you're the sweetest girl I know. And she used to make me sing it and I sang it at my auntie's wedding when I was a kid. <laughs> Will I do it now? No. no. I, do. <laughs> I have no emotional connection to Claire. I only found out the Cliffs of Moor were there. I don't think I've ever been to Claire. Well, maybe we need to make a trip. So that's our county this week, Claire. And our county rep this week, who is it, Andrea? Oh my God, Margaret O'Connor. She's such a fab bitch. She is a milliner and she has made hats for Lady Gaga and this other fabulous woman, Andrea Horan. <laughs> she made me like this huge leopard print turban. Imagine oh, my jo- one, joy. Yeah. She's absolutely phenomenal. She makes amazing hats and she just won an award in Claire and the Enterprise Board. But the thing I love about uh, Margaret is that she's repping Claire. She has her shop in Ennis and she kind of keeps the economy going. Because don't you know the way usually high fashion moves out to London, Dublin, but she's repping in Claire. So big up Margaret. What is it about Mill in the west of Ireland Philip Tracy as well she worked with him oh there you go so um, hats off to Claire (laughs) zing I love monks in Ballyvaughan I love Bunratty Castle I love Doolin I love um, La Hinch and on a sunny sunny day all the surfers checking out all the, the waves I love the Straw Boys at a Clare wedding. Um, that's always quite cool when the Straw Boys rock up. I love the lust for storytelling and traditional music and folklore. I love the thatched cottages. I love the fact that you can be in gridlock and there is, you know, cows and sheep on the road and you're trying to get to where you need to go to, but you're going to have to wait because... They need to get to the field that they need to get to. I love the fact that Clare people are so into their music. One day I was walking down in the burn, just going for a walk, and it was like nine o'clock in the morning, and there was this oomph, oomph, oomph techno rave going on in the burn. You know, Clare is quite unpredictable. You know, people are just wild and free, and you never, you never know what what could be happening. I love the Doolin Folk Festival, which is on this weekend, which I'm really looking forward to, and seeing all the bands and different DJs. And you know, real that's to me, that's what Clare is all about: is the music scene and the fact that you can go into a pub in Doolin and order yourself the nicest pint of creamy Guinness and there's like a fire on and the turf is there and the whole place smells like turf and the room might be the size of your mother's kitchen and there's one person in the corner with a fiddle another person with a tin whistle and they're singing and there's a mixture of tourists and all different all quite like quite integrated and it doesn't matter what size or colour or shape you are everyone's quite welcome it's quite inclusive I love Liston Verna. Um, I love when you hear Christy Moore singing Liston Verna. And I love the matchmaking festival. If you are on Tinder, you get off Tinder and you 
come to County Clare to Listenverna and Willie Daly, he's the man, he's got this book and you put your name on the book and he will find you love. I love Father Ted's house. I love the fact that you can go for tea and scones in that house, which is cool. I love um, the Alloway Caves. I love the Cliffs of Moher. I love it for its beauty and its scale and its rawness, but I also hate it for all the all the, the, the theft and all the people and the lives it's stolen. But it's still a magical place all the same. I love when you are in the burn and it's pacing down of the heavens, it's raining and it just won't stop. You're just drowned like a drowned rat. And then suddenly the sun just comes in out of nowhere. It's like you're in a movie or you have this outer kind of body experience. It's just so surreal and it's so weird, but you can only experience that for yourself when you're there in that moment. So this week's county is Clare, as you now know. And this week's question is, should we forgive dune bag Trumpism? Obviously, this is to do with the recent visit of himself and the carry on that was happening in Dunebeg. And there was a lot of discussion about this. Like some people were completely scarlet and cringing about the fact that he was being or his sons, let's say, Eric and Donald Jr. were being welcomed by um, the public and going around the pubs and pulling pints and a priest telling them that there's a special place for them in heaven and all this kind of ridiculousness. And then other people were saying, look, the golf course brings a lot of employment and money to that area. But, so, Which we should not forget that when he bought the golf course, he fired everyone and hired everyone back on minimum wage. Okay, fair point. Miriam Lord had an interesting piece in The Times actually saying, you know, these people aren't gone goom- beans. They're just, you know, happy that there's employment. And nobody is saying they're gone beans. No, I don't think so. But I do think that, you know, there's a difference between taking uh, someone's money and employment and astounding that person with your ingratitude, which would be a good approach, than actually celebrating these two absolute pricks of Donald Trump's sons around the town. I just I thought think that it's was another gross. indication of how we uh, value money so much that we're valuing receiving money over our actual morals and what it means for what he's done and all, where he stands on racism and uh, all the sexism and grabbing the pussies and all that jazz. Yeah. And, you know, for United Ireland, as we've said kind of before, you know, we take these issues that are local and then zoom out. And we are zooming out a good deal this episode to talk more generally about why it is, you know, atrocious that that Trump or his family um, should be kind of celebrated and welcomed in any way at all. And we have an amazing guest to discuss all this uh, on this episode. So in 2016, throughout the US presidential campaign and in its immediate aftermath, there was one journalist whose writing became almost prophetic. She was calling out what was actually happening as America began sliding down the rabbit hole towards autocracy and warning the public about the dangers of normalising Donald Trump and his administration and band of hangers on. And this woman is Sarah Kenzier. And at times during the 2016 uh, presidential campaign, her tweets to me almost felt like someone calling on a faraway CB radio, you know, phoning in warnings that were unfolding uh, before the world's eyes. Her book of essays, The View from Flyover Country, which takes the Midwest of America as its subject matter, became a New York Times bestseller and a book that Hillary Clinton said she was riveted by when she read it in the aftermath of her election loss. 
One of the reasons for Kenzia's remarkable insights, in my opinion, has been her expertise when it comes to studying foreign demagogues and puncturing that American exceptionalism by detailing that what happens in other places was going down right on her doorstep. She also hosts, co-hosts the podcast Gaslit Nation with Andrea Chalupa and has become one of the most vital commentators in this weird, dysfunctional, proto-fascistic phase we're now witnessing unfurl in the United States of America. Sarah Kenzier, thank you so much for being with us on United Ireland. Oh yeah, no problem. Cool. So first of all, tell me a little bit about your own work pre-2016. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I, I studied a combination of subjects that unfortunately uh, made me a good candidate to study Donald Trump in 2016. I have a PhD in anthropology uh, where I focused on authoritarian states of the former Soviet Union, particularly Uzbekistan and especially the use of digital media and propaganda uh, you know, to sway public opinion and how dissidents uh, tried to use it to fight back. I also studied the collapse of institutions in the United States, the erosion of social trust over time. I'm based in St. Louis, Missouri, um, which people abroad often know because of its proximity to, to Ferguson, um, you know, where the uprising was in 2014 against uh, police brutality. That became a international story. Um, so, you know, I've kind of been in close proximity uh, to repressive governments and uh, those who try to fight against them for my whole life as a journalist and as a scholar. When you talk about the collapse of institutions in the U.S., what do you mean by that? Oh, well, for the last, I don't know, 15 to 20 years, um, the United States and the West in general has gone through a very hard time. Uh, you know, we had 9-11, then we had the illegal war afterwards uh, in Iraq that destabilized the Middle East. We had the 2008 economic collapse uh, from which we've never recovered, certainly not where I live in St. Louis, we've never recovered. Um, you know, and all of that created weaknesses in terms of the institutions that affect people's daily life, um, you know, our ability to afford food, shelter, education, healthcare, um, you know, jobs, opportunities, all of that kind of went out the window, along with trust in government, um, you know, because we did have a war based on a lie. We had a financial collapse in which uh, the perpetrators on Wall Street remained unpunished. Um, and then I think, you know, ultimately what that does is erode trust among individuals. And, uh, you know, you have to remember at the same time that this was happening, digital media and social media were emerging and that was reconstructing how people relate to each other, how they access information, what they define as true. Um, and so in the midst of this, in 2016, Donald Trump, a prototypical demagogue, a corrupt criminal, uh, alleged uh, billionaire, you know, steps into the picture with an extremely savvy understanding of how to manipulate the media, how, how to manipulate people. Um, you know, I took, I was very alarmed by his candidacy, um, you know, in part because of his, his bigotry, his cruelty, but also because I thought he could win. I thought he was, you know, sort of uh, the wrong person at the right time, you know, that we had the kind of conditions in the United States in which dictatorships traditionally have emerged throughout history. And I never felt like we were exceptional. I never felt like we were immune. Um, and I think he's made his move and unfortunately has accelerated this process of institutional decline that, that has been in play for decades. Your um, Twitter commentary, I suppose, for want of a better phrase, during that uh, presidential campaign became, for a lot of people, the definitive, 
you know, warning signs and sense of urgency that was quite lacking in uh, media that was looking at things in a much softer or roundabout way. Why do you think what you were saying cut through so much at that time? What were you saying before he was elected and why weren't other people saying it? I think some people were they were afraid to say that one he was as bad and, and likely much worse uh, than most folks were saying and two um, they were afraid of saying he was going to win for various reasons it was put out there by a lot of pundits a lot of pollsters uh, that it was impossible for Trump to win the primary that it was impossible for him to win the general they would base this on some things like um, you know they'd say demography was destiny and ignore, ignore things like voter suppression um, you know and the prospect of foreign interference. I think they also didn't want to think, um, some of them, that we were this kind of country, uh, you know, that Americans would elect an openly racist, xenophobic man with a long history of bankruptcies with ties to the mafia. That was something nobody wanted to talk about. You know, kind of uh, the worst American was about to become the president. And I think some folks thought, oh, well, you know, America is better than that. Uh, I, I personally didn't think that, you know, I mean, I love my country, but I don't have any illusions about its history. You know, we are a country founded on, on slavery, on genocide. We're a country that's long had corruption and state sanctioned autocratic practices. So I certainly thought that Trump winning and Trump not being checked uh, was a possibility. You know, once he won, people were like, oh, well, Congress will check him. We have checks and balances. We have the courts. Uh, you know, we have a, a dispersion of, of powers that prevents, um, you know, a, a tyrannical executive. That's what the Constitution is about, but the Constitution is only as good as people who will uphold it. And I had studied Trump's long career, which is a career that involves blackmail, threats, bribery. You know, and these are also tactics, unfortunately, that he used on the media um, and that he used on other politicians. And I think we've seen the effect of that as well. So uh, I, I think folks um, they underestimated him. They also had this kind of illusion in their mind. They always say, "Oh, Trump's going to pivot, and he's going." to become presidential and i'm like you know what are you talking about this guy is like 70 years old he's been acting this way his entire life he gets away with every crime he commits he's never faced real hard consequences for his actions he's being abetted by the republican party uh seemingly by parts of the fbi the democrats are cowering everyone's acting like a coward the media's acting like a coward he'll get away with it again um unless you confront him head on and unfortunately we're still in this sort of i don't want to say it's a head in the sand moment because I think at this point people have no choice uh, but to look at what he and his administration have done to this country uh, in the direction we're going but they still don't have um, a great plan to combat it and they're still not using every tool in their arsenal to fight it even though this is really a nonpartisan fight you know this is a fight for democracy for rights for freedom that I really think everyone should get on board with and you know I live in a state that did vote for Trump you know the majority of people where I live in Missouri voted for for him. You know, and I, I feel sorry for a lot of them, too. You know, they're also losing their rights. We're, we're having environmental catastrophes, flooding, um, you know, all sorts of terrible things are happening and no one is here to protect us. So I, I do think most Americans kind of grasp that the situation is not, um, you know, for the good of, of the majority of, of most people. Uh, but structurally, he's in a position of power um, that he's able to wield without anybody checking him, without the kind of traditional forms of leverage that would hold this kind of uh, kleptocratic administration back in previous eras. Why were you so attuned to the correlation or the relationship and potential similar path 
um, between Trump and Putin before other people were, because that's how it felt to me when you were talk when you were kind of making that link between Trump and Putin. That obviously now we know is is much more embedded, maybe the people imagined. Yeah, that was one of those stories that people didn't really want to touch. Um, And, you know, I came out of studying the former Soviet Union, mostly focusing on Central Asia um, and countries like Uzbekistan and Azerbaijan, Um, you know, not quite as much as Russia. But of course, when you study the former Soviet Union, you are also, you know, required, uh, you know, to be somewhat fluent in Russian political affairs. I can read Russian. I had to learn it for grad school. Um, I began kind of hunting through Russian state media. And one of the things I found right away is that from about, you know, 2014 onward, they were writing these pieces about Donald Trump just praising him as this great future leader, as this guy who was going to save Russia. And this is when he was hosting a game show. You know, this is when he was the host of The Apprentice and people really weren't taking him seriously here as a viable presidential candidate, but they certainly were in Russia. Uh, So that kind of alarmed me. And then, you know, all I did is look into publicly available archived works about Trump's business dealings. And I just discovered that Trump had ties going back to Russia since the late 80s. And this is now something that's, you know, a bit more widely known, Um, you know, and I'm not saying there's something inherently wrong, you know, with an American having business ties to Russia, plenty of people do, but not in the way that Trump did, in which you're combining links to oligarchs, links to well-known criminal uh, elements, you know, to the Russian mafia, along with a lot of very anti-American rhetoric. You know, when Trump got flown to Moscow in 1987, he came back and the first thing he did was take out an ad in the newspaper decrying American foreign policy, uh, basically saying being in NATO uh, is a ripoff. We, you know, we need to move away from these Western alliances. And he's been incredibly consistent in his deference to Russia um, and in his kind of anti-EU, anti-NATO uh, stances for decades. And, you know, as we know, Trump is a, a kind of erratic character. He's not really somebody who's known for his consistency in terms of anything. But when it comes down to his loyalty to Russia, uh, that's pretty unbreakable. And with Putin, you know, it's been almost a year uh, since the Helsinki summit where he basically prostrated himself to Putin in plain sight. And I think that that did wake up some people. They're kind of like, oh, my God, this is real. Uh, This is new. This is bad. I mean, we, we have a long history of corruption in the United States, but I don't think we've ever had a president, you know, about which we've had to ask, to which country does this president greatest loyalty lie. I mean, I never thought I'd have to ask that about my own president um, or that the answer would be kind of obvious, you know, and that his loyalty really is. I won't even say exactly to Russia as a country, but his loyalty is to this circle of oligarchs and plutocrats and mobsters uh, that is mostly connected to the Kremlin, but also includes actors from uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel, uh, other countries. You know, Trump loves dictators. He likes Kim Jong-un. You know, this is somebody who has portrayed our traditional enemies, you know, the enemies of the United States as his his personal friends and who looks at our longtime friends, uh, you know, whether it's the EU, the UK, Canada, Mexico, um, as our enemies. And so that's been very alarming uh, for American people. And it's been disastrous in terms of things like trade and, and diplomacy. I mean, it's a disastrous administration. And I wish people would just say that straight out and, you know, spare us all this kind of, you know, talking along the outside of it because it really is uh, it's destructive and it's moving fast there is a broader existential thing i suppose as well in terms of what is true and um and and truth itself and i guess we've seen this 
artic, you know, manifest in various different ways, you know, like fake news or just outright lies from Sarah Huckabee Sanders and from Trump himself and from people in his administration and, you know, just like bullshit, like laws and um, executive measures and all that kind of stuff. But that truth piece is, is really difficult to battle, I think, because if somebody decides that the facts are no longer um, relevant, then how can you really get back to any kind of normal yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the question of the relationship between truth and law, I think, is one that's haunting Americans because occasionally, you know, one interesting thing about Trump or any kind of um, autocracy or aspiring autocracy is that they also like to brag about their misdeeds. They like to flaunt the crimes that they committed because they know that they're not going to face consequences for them. So, you know, Trump ran on a platform of unconstitutional practices, of things like a Muslim ban, you know, that should be illegal. Um, you know, he ran as a bigot. Um, what he didn't run on uh, is a career criminal, you know, which is what he is. And that's the part that he doesn't want the American public to see. You know, what Trump does with his, you know, quote, alternative facts is he covers up crime uh, with scandal. You'd rather have people talking about scandals. You'd rather have people saying things like Trump lied about the number of people at his inauguration, things that are uh, blatantly untrue, but it's not technically like illegal. Um, for him to say that. They don't want people looking at, for example, his decades of ties um, to the Russian mafia and its various leaders. They don't want people going into his business dealings, his financial records. That's the kind of stuff um, that I think would come out in hearings, oversight hearings or impeachment hearings. It also wrestles away the narrative from him. Uh, you know, Trump is somebody who spent his life first manipulating tabloid media and regular media in New York City, went on to reality TV in which he literally had a scripted life and could present himself in whatever way he wanted and then went on to manipulate the media during the campaign uh, and in the aftermath especially exploiting um, you know the uh, lack of viability of the media economically you know it's been very badly hurt since the recession um, he knows how to uh, exploit people who value access journalism and just want proximity to power uh, I think if you want to be a good journalist in this time you should take the, the opposite view you should be standing up for the powerless. But what he is afraid of is all of his crimes and dirty laundry getting aired in public. Um, and we know this because he goes out of his way to suppress this information. And if truth didn't matter, uh, if truth really had no value, they wouldn't go out of their way to suppress it. And they're still doing that. They're targeting the journalists um, that know about it. They're, they're threatening people. They're trying to sue various outlets that may cover these topics out of litigate, you know, litigate them out of existence. Um, and so that's a problem. But I do think as confused as a lot of Americans are, and it really is hard to live under this blitzkrieg of lies every day, you know, every day the president's lying to you like, you know, a dozen or several dozen times. Um, that's a new one. It's not like presidents don't lie, but they don't lie as, you know, constantly. Like when we hear something that's true from Trump, it's kind of like, my goodness, you know, how what an unusual day. Um, that shouldn't be how things uh, operate. But I do think at this point, people kind of 
expect that they've become better at parsing the lies. What I do wish is that they'd kind of prioritize the lies and not get so caught up um, in things that are, you know, stupid and, and scandalous, but look long and hard at the crimes. Because while people will vote for a bigot, um, people will vote for a poor leader. Most people don't want to vote for a crook. You know, they don't want to vote for someone who's going to steal their money. Uh, nobody likes that. And so I think if Americans kind of knew the depth of his uh, financial criminality, they may look at him in a different light. Right. And this kind of scandal versus crime thing is interesting because I suppose the situation under Trump is so multifaceted and there's so many things happening at once and it is head spinning, as you're saying, like this blitzkrieg of lies. And, you know, it's one of those things we could spend an hour talking about the judiciary or Mueller or the Kushners. But one thing um, you're really great at is pulling focus on things uh, and imploring people not to get distracted by the more maybe frivolous stuff and concentrating on what's important. So what are some of the things going on with him that you think aren't being covered so much that you believe to be very serious? Um, well, basically, you know, Trump is at heart a kleptocrat. You know, he has authoritarian ambitions. He does want to get rid of, you know, freedom of speech, um, free media, etc. But he mostly is in it um, to kind of reconfigure the economy, to bottom it out and then profit from that loss. And so he's making these moves, um, you know, to. Uh, they basically maximize personal profits for him and his family. Um, I, I do wish they would pay more attention to what Jared Kushner is doing, uh, you know, setting up similar international relationships. I mean, that's what this is, is, you know, Trump came from a pre-existing network of oligarchs and plutocrats from around the world. And the struggle of that network prior to Trump taking office was to get away with crimes, um, you know, without uh, facing any kind of repercussions. And because of the loosening of regulations about white collar crime in America that's been going on since the Reagan era, it became possible for him to do that, although I still have a lot of questions about not only why Trump, but people like Paul Manafort, um, you know, who is now in prison for old crimes, why they weren't arrested at the time. Um, I'm, I'm kind of wondering why Roger Stone's not in prison, given that he was indicted. There's a lot of strange things going on, people behaving with a kind of criminal impunity. Uh, so I wish they would look at that. Um, I wish people would understand that we are on a unique time timeline now. You know, when I talk about dictatorship, authoritarianism, people often think that it's irreversible, you know, that once a dictator gets in, it's just impossible to get them out. That's not the case. Um, it's difficult to get them out because what he's doing is rewriting laws uh, and packing courts so that he's always exonerated and so that his own uh, perverse, you know, financial or other interests are, are protected. But, um, you know, historically throughout time, of course, uh, dictatorships have risen and they've fallen. One thing that does worry about worry me a great deal uh, is the problem of climate change, uh, you know, which is a global problem. It is linked to autocracy. When you link when you look at the countries um, that are trying to just uh, hold on to their natural resources as routes to wealth, you know, oil heavy countries like uh, Russia or Saudi Arabia, you know, those are the same countries that have repressive regimes um, and that are aligning with the United States in this new access of autocrats and their actions and the actions of any country um, that is ignoring the problem of climate change or worsening it, it's, it's not just an attack on their own citizenry. It harms the entire world. Um, and we are now on a, you know, a somewhat limited timeline in terms of how we're going to fix this problem and, and tackle it. It's important that, you know, folks get aggressive about uh, redevising our economy in a way um, that it's not literally creating a scorched earth in an uninhabitable 
planet. So that problem honestly uh, shakes me more than the problem of autocracy because you know the latter is uh, a human problem. I, I do think if people work together, if they show some conviction and courage, we can get through this. Um, what we're doing to the environment at the same time, and the fact that autocrats will exacerbate the problem of the climate crisis and they'll exploit the, crime, the climate crisis, um, you know, for financial gain. That really worries me because they don't seem to have the same view of human life as we do. I mean, I guess that's another thing I wish people would look at with Trump is he's a sociopath. Um, you know, he's somebody who's like a nuclear war fetishist. He's been fantasizing about nuclear war for 30 straight years. You know, he, he wants to bomb Europe. Um, you know, he, he says, if we have nukes, why don't we use them? When he talks about, um, you know, veterans, he doesn't care if people die for our country. When he talks about uh, mass casualty crisis, you know, uh, he, he just says it doesn't matter because nothing matters. He has this kind of, you know, nihilistic view of life that I don't think any previous American president has had. And that's it's just dangerous in an individual. But of course, it's extremely dangerous in an individual that does have control of nuclear weapons, that has control of major policy decisions, whether about climate change or war. I'm worried about us potentially going to war uh, with Iran. I mean, there's a lot going on. But, um, you know, those are sort of, I guess, the two main things to look at are, you know, his financial crimes, because I do think that legally that is what can get rid of him. If you get rid of him um, and, and others in the administration that have committed similar crimes, we may be able to, you know, help uh, rebuild a society that's, you know, that's just, that's not destroying the planet, that uh, preserves rights, that, um, you know, preserves resources. Uh, we are in a dire time. Um, you know, we have a lot on our plate. So sorry, I'm going on so long here, but it's just all these, all these issues are intertwined to me. So, you know, it's important that I hope people can, uh, you know, look at the connections between them and that various experts can, and just ordinary people can get together and, you know, try to figure out solutions. For sure. And listen, before you go, um, looking to the, the much shorter timeline, I suppose, of 2020, and um, Brad Parscale, uh, Trump's 2020 campaign manager, has kind of been outlining this billion dollar strategy to get Trump elected in, in plain sight. And I've also been reading some really uh, kind of terrifying stuff regarding their digital strategy, which is just so amped up for 2020 and kind of seems to be already leaving whatever the Democrats come up with in its wake. And speaking to my colleagues in the US, most journalists, you know, kind of seem resigned to the fact that Trump is going to get reelected or that they can't see a path forward for the Democrats, given the many ways elections in the US are compromised, be that through voter suppression or interference or propaganda or what have you. I mean, what do you think is the way forward? Is there a, 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 is there a way to intervene um, democratically uh, so that there's a, ca- a candidate exists that can win the electoral college vote? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is I think if the election were free and fair, I honestly do think the Democrats would win. You know, it's funny to me how the press acts as if he's this extremely popular president when he is historically the least popular president in American history. You know, he came in that way and he never left. You know, he was bragging the other day that, according to one poll, his his approval rating had finally gotten to 50 percent. Like when you're bragging that finally half the country doesn't outright hate you, which I'm not even sure is accurate. 
you know, that, that's pretty pathetic. Um, the problems that we face at the election are structural. You know, we face the problem of foreign interference, which is not just limited to, um, you know, propaganda and the kind of like Russian bot farms and things we saw in 2016. But, you know, uh, elections to our, I mean, vulnerabilities in our actual infrastructure, in our polls, in our machines, in our databases, um, in which hackers could potentially affect it. We also have voter suppression. You know, they partially repealed the, the Voting Rights Act in 2013, which opened the door for a lot of uh, ways to disenfranchise people and block them from voting in various states. The Republicans think of this strategically. They focus on the states that they see as swing states. But, you know, we saw the results in the 2018 midterms. Uh, we saw massive turnout. Um, you know, people are, are sick of this. You know, folks are sick of living in chaos. And, you know, even me living in a state that did vote for Trump, uh, the, the Trump voters are sick of Trump. It doesn't mean they like the Democrats. They also hate the Democrats. But, you know, they're not necessarily going to vote for the guy who has caused policies that got them locked in a trade war with China and, you know, ended up with like their their soy fields and wheat fields flooded to the point that they have no crops and they're now losing their family businesses. I mean, no one likes to lose their money. If the Democrats could just get that through their heads and kind of run on an anti-corruption issue, uh, I think they do pretty well. And, you know, there are candidates doing that, like Elizabeth Warren in particular has been, you know, having this slow and steady rise in the United States because she talks about these problems head on. And she also says, I have a plan to fix it. It's not just bluster. It's not just empty words. Um, you know, paradoxically, one of the big obstacles here is, in fact, the media because they concentrate on this false idea of electability, like, oh, is a woman electable? Oh, is someone who's not white electable? It's like, yeah, actually, if you would quit harping on that, how they can't win, you know, maybe they'd have more of a fighting chance. But um, I do think most Americans do not want this president. Um, they're frustrated with how things are. They're, they're frustrated with, at the least, the chaos of the situation. So it's a matter of uh, protecting the election from a structural level and then preparing for the fact that even if a Democrat wins, Trump is going to say it's rigged. He's not going to want to leave. You're going to have to drag him out in handcuffs. It's probably going to get very bloody. And I mean that literally, you know, it's going to get ugly. There's going to be violence. Uh, I'm not looking forward to any of that. I really hope I'm wrong and that it doesn't happen. But it's something that just realistically America should be prepared for. I'm glad you raised Elizabeth Warren because she does seem to be um, the candidate who who is uh, cutting through. And um, the electability thing, I suppose, is a moot point because it's bizarre that that the media says that without even looking to the fact that Obama got elected, you know, Um, but I suppose the broader question for America is, you know, when Trump is gone, uh, there's still going to be the 63 million people who voted for him. Um, And what do you do with that education issue, that economic issue, um, the racism issue. I mean, I I suppose like in Europe, a lot of the time, um, the American exceptionalism doesn't really exist for us, obviously, because we're looking from afar. And while oftentimes I see in the American media that Trump is some like crazy blip, I mean, a lot of the time Europeans kind of view it as, no, this, this era has exposed what was there. Oh, yeah, it was there the whole time. I mean, all these folks, you know, all these bigots and xenophobes, all these failed economic policies, all these things that we talk about were openly now, they were there under, you know, the Obama administration, not necessarily because of it, but, you know, they existed um, parallel with it. You know, and I wrote a book, The View from Flyover Country, the essays of that were between 2012 and 2014. And at the time, folks thought they were alarmist or hyperbolic. You know, now everyone kind of accepts them as common sense, uh, you know, unfortunately. I, I 
wish things had changed enough so that that weren't the case, but it is. Um, and yeah, you know, Trump is a symptom of a disease. Like if he is actually gone, we're going to be stuck with an obstructionist, uh, you know, one party state leaning GOP. You know, that's in fact what they want. They've also now become implicated in a lot of Trump's criminal activity, uh, which is going to lead to, you know, potentially a lot of legal issues down the line. Uh, we've always been a country that's, you know, been racist, that's had, you know, xenophobic policies, that's had repressive policies. Um, that's not new. It varies state by state. But honestly, I think one of the things, you know, one of the great advantages for Trump was the refusal of a lot of powerful people to acknowledge these problems. They would just say, oh, things are going to be OK or look at the economy. It's improving. It's better. You know, they look at they'd say things like we're at five percent unemployment and ignore the fact that most people are underemployed, you know, that they're like working two jobs to survive. So, yeah, technically they're employed, but like one job is at McDonald's and the others at Burger King. They're not exactly living it up. You know, they don't have health insurance. They have massive debt. Um, when you get a candidate that just cuts through the crap, um, whether it's Elizabeth Warren or although I'm personally not a fan. A lot of people say this about Bernie Sanders, you know, and I do appreciate that Sanders has called out uh, income inequality and called out debt um, and all of these economic issues. It's like a sigh of relief. Everyone feels relieved that finally someone is being truthful. And what Trump did is he was truthful about some of this stuff. He was like, America is in really bad shape. You know, people are hurting. Like we've, we've, we've lost our touch. And then he preyed on that pain, like a vulture, you know, he had no aim to fix it. He's never had any aim to fix things for ordinary people. He's had his opportunity for several decades as a very powerful businessman to do that. And all he's ever done is harm people. And I wish the media had focused on that more heavily at the time, because a lot of folks, especially where I live, thought, that, well, this is just the guy from The Apprentice. He's like a big, you know, successful businessman. He understands business. He's going to help uh, fix our economies. I really did meet people who believed that. Um, and that was partly not their fault because they were told a lot of lies, you know, in they swallow those lies. I think people can see through it now because, you know, you look at your own life and you're like, well, I can't pay my bills. And this lunatic is tweeting all day and, you know, threatening to bomb people. And that's not really what I want for, you know, what I want in a president. Um, you know, so we'll see what happens. But I think if it, it, the point is to be as honest as possible about all this, even if it's scary, uh, even if it's depressing, because once you're honest about a problem, then you can start to solve it. And I think a lot of the issue we had, especially during the Obama administration, was a refusal to be brutally honest about how vulnerable we were as a country and that, you know, we were no more immune to these crises than any other country in the world. And I think, unfortunately, people have learned that one the hard way. Um, very well said. Uh, were you following um, his visits to uh, the UK and Ireland last week? I mean, obviously, kind of monopolised a good bit of our press here with regards to the welcome that he received in, in Doonbeg, which is a small place in, in County Clare. Um, but at the same time, I guess this is the conundrum for, um, you know, leaders or, or countries greeting Trump is like, you know, entire countries or prime ministers just end up looking like Mitt Romney in that restaurant photo. Oh, know. yeah. Yeah. He humiliates everyone he comes in touch with, you know, including the Queen of England, uh, you know, including any state official who's going to try to, you know, grant him some dignity. I'm not saying that people shouldn't meet with him. They have no choice but to. I mean, he is the, the president and they have to. Um, they shouldn't be, you know, behaving in a sycophantic way. You know, I was reading about his uh, little visit to the golf course in Ireland. And of course, it's completely typical of Trump. Uh, you know, from what I read, he refused to go to Dublin. He'd only stay 
stay on his golf course because that's his money-making machine in Ireland. And that's how he sees the world. And, you know, one thing that people get wrong about Trump is they think he's this big, bold, brash, risk-taking guy. It's like, no, this is a guy who will literally just go to his own properties, to his own little, you know, safety area, uh, to his own little money-making schemes, and will never risk being caught off guard by anything, which is why he, he tends to kind of avoid traditional uh, diplomatic visits. You know, he's, he's traveling less. Uh, he costs the American taxpayers, I think, $3.6 million that visit to that golf course. And, um, you know, I mean, I just I feel sorry for you guys. You know, I, I felt sorry for our allies this entire time that we've had, you know, this tyrannical buff, buffoon as a president, um, you know, because it hurts our relationship, uh, you know, with the UK, with Ireland, uh, with NATO countries, with the EU. We need the strength of those alliances. You know, we just had the anniversary of D-Day, um, which should have prompted some introspection about the vulnerability of countries to brutal warfare and how we need to be constantly vigilant um, so that doesn't happen again. It should have prompted people to think about bravery and service. And, you know, Trump is, of course, antithetical to both of those principles. Um, I'm not quite sure. I feel like some of that got lost. Uh, I did appreciate how folks um, throughout the UK and I, I believe in Ireland as well turned out to protest against Trump. Uh, you know, Americans have grown very tired. I think we will come back and protest again. Um, but, you know, it was good to see that other folks at least recognize the crisis, because as I said, it's a shared crisis. It's a global crisis of autocracy, of financial corruption, and ultimately uh, it's a climate crisis too. Um, so it's good if we all stick together on that. Absolutely. Listen, Sarah Kenzie, thank you so much for, for taking the time out. It's been absolutely fascinating and keep up the great work and everybody should listen to the brilliant uh, Gaslit Nation podcast as well. Hopefully we'll talk to you soon in much brighter circumstances. I hope so. Thank you. So this week's time for Get It In The Sea is to the people who think that Nike shouldn't sell clothes to fat people. Uh, Mannequin was unveiled in the London store of, now I hate using the size plus size because what is a plus the size of what? so they unveiled a plus size mannequin in the shop and there's been absolutely uproar. There was a big article saying that it promotes obesity and that it's literally diabetic inducing and all these crazy stuff. And it it just kind of goes to the um, fact that yeah, on the one side you have people going, why don't fat people exercise? They're so unhealthy. La 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 la. And then when uh, an exercise brand starts to sell clothes and promote clothes to that that group of people that everyone's giving out about there's an uproar about that so it's just a bit ridiculous so they can all get in the sea fave bits what are our fave bits this week my fave bit this week oh my god I can't even cope I can't even talk about it it's Rihanna's leopard mania shoot for interview mag did you see it who didn't it was everywhere do you like leopard print There's that laugh again. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a, a little taste for it. I've made it the uniform of my employment place. My the business. Business. That you Thank you. Tropical popical <laughs> on South William Street. Can't wait till I get words back again. Yeah. Now le- I just can't get over it. She's such a ride. Like, she's a ride, but also because I'm not about visual all the time, most of the time. But I just think Rihanna is such a 
brilliant person for doing her own thing and still slaying but also not giving a fuck about absolutely anyone and in the interview she's talking about how shy she is and I identify with that a lot but she projects this other image so people don't think she's shy and then she just gets on with doing things and she has 10 businesses and she just does things the way she wants to do it and they are very successful and I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned in that. And she doesn't do many interviews at all, really. No, but she and she's she's not sweating for fame, do you know, that way. Like mm. she wants to make music and have people like listen to it. But even in the interview, she's like, I, I don't didn't want to be famous. What I wanted to do was make music that people enjoyed. And then she has her lingerie range because that she wants to do a f- to spread the sizing then for the makeup she wanted to get a full range of colours so like everything she does has integrity and I th- feel like she's not just in it to make money even though she does make money and I, that's a business uh, model I really respect Yeah and I suppose in the you know people kind of moving beyond their pop careers or whatever she's quietly become you know much more successful business wise than a lot of people who constantly bang on about their ventures like Fenty Beauty is obviously huge mm. Savage is the underwear, right? Yeah. And she's just starting this new company with LVMH as well. Yeah, she's just had her f- first collection come out and she has her new album which is coming out and she's like, I just, I don't want to release it until it's ready. I don't want to rush it. I want to make sure it's right and I'm not going to make videos maybe. She just has her, she just wants to make good shit. Yeah. Which I think is lost a lot and it's actually embarrassing that we're saying that. Like, she just wants to make good shit. Why do we not all want to make good shit? We just want the theme seems to be we want to make money whereas I think her head is focused on making good stuff and the money follows so go on Rihanna and leopard print any other fave bits for you the other fave bits I went to the Union Cup uh, at the weekend which was the first uh, LGBTQI plus and a sorry forgot the letters uh, rugby festival which was really interesting to see obviously I've been to uh, the Kinsale Sevens actually I have a funny story about that I went to the Kinsale Sevens on my friend's hen party and she met her husband-to-be. Oh, well, was Juicy. she the hen? Yeah. <laughs> was she... Hang on a sec. It's a, it's a legendary story. I think it... We'll have to leave it there. Uh, no, but, I'm, no, hang on a sec. <laughs> I'm confused. She was getting married but then met her... Another husband? Yeah. No way. Yeah. Wow. It actually has legendary status in Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> like you meet people and they're like oh my god you know her um, anyway so the Union Cup brought back a lot of memories of that but it was uh, brilliant to see and I suppose it is to see something like that and the uh, where rugby's getting in a bad uh, run of things at the moment especially with all the London Irish stuff and Diageo's sponsorship in question with the Paddy Jackson signing you have something like this which is all about um, acceptance and equality and respect and I think there's a lot of lessons that could be taken from that for the main rugby tournaments perhaps yeah damn straight and then the last thing of my favourite week was the unveiling of the Garda Pride cars uh, as James Kavanagh said on his Instagram, he was like, I'd almost want to be arrested with those ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, the, as stuff is going uh, rolling out for Pride, all the events that are being announced, and as there's a bit of a pushback against the corporate takeover, stuff like the drag ball, which I'm very excited by because I'm obsessed with Pose and I love balls and the walk-offs and the whole shebang. So I can't wait for that. And the cop destroyers are coming to Davina and Victoria's uh, pride party so that's not very corporately acceptable I suppose <laughs> um, and then the, obviously the big mother party so there's so much uh, coming up in pride I'm very excited Brill. my five bits this week 
are Docs Ireland, which is an amazing All-Ireland International Documentary Festival in Belfast uh, this weekend. It runs until June 16th. I'm heading up to Belfast for that to do a talk, uh, which is super interesting, with Bernadette McAllisky, who I'm really, really excited to meet. I've never met her before, so I'm intimidated and uh, can't wait to, to chat with her. So I love Docs. It's my jam. I used to run a music documentary film festival as well. Um, so Wouldn't be like you'd have your finger in another pie with it. <laughs> nah. Um, but I, yeah, I'm really excited. They've met like Alex Gibney is going to be a guest. There's really brilliant stuff. The new PJ Harvey documentary, all that kind of thing. So if you are in that area this weekend, Docs aren't, uh, the documentary festival is happening in Belfast. I so think go. that really sums up our relationship. I'm talking about Rihanna's photo shoot in Leopard Print. You're talking about this wonderful documentary festival. Well, I'm also here for Rihanna and Leopard Print, <laughs> lest we forget. My other fave bit is happening next weekend. It's Body and Soul. Uh, brilliant festival, always such a great buzz. Loads of burl people there. Mathman is curating a night. Um, there's just loads of stuff on. And Can't I always, wait. And I always love it. It's just really uh, good vibes. So if you haven't got your ticket yet, go do it now. Let's talk about you. To support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. We need loads of patrons to make this podcast deadly. We also want to impress upon you that the more people who support, the less we'll have to repeat this really annoying ask. So if you do it, then we'll shut up. <laughs> and now our outro. This podcast <laughs> is produced by Andrew Mangan at Castaway Media. Welcome back to Susie Bennett. You're meant to say that because everyone loves the way you say it. Go on. Susie Bennett. Thanks to Crystal Clear for our music, Sarah Fox for our design and you for listening. You can find links to all of our socials on our web site United Ireland Podcast website. website. <laughs> it's just to keep things interesting, you know. People <laughs> just expect you to say it all in one go. UnitedIrelandPodcast.com. And if you're enjoying listening, do let us know. Give us a tweet, give us a little Insta story, whatever. But even better than that, give us some cash on our Patreon account. And finally, before we go, this week's tuna chicken roll. I've just discovered it this week, so I've had it on repeat. And I was in the gym today and I had it on for the whole hour with my personal trainer. He loves it as well. So I'm confident everyone's going to be obsessed with it it's called Hallelujah Anyway and it's Candy Staten and Larce we'll go with Larce so enjoy we've been Una Mullally and Andrea Horan this has been United Ireland and that was Claire you have some problems you need God to solve them you get down on your knees and pray when is he coming through when will he answer you well it may not be 